Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, this is DeRay. I'm welcome to Positive the People. In this episode, it's me, Kai, and Miles talking about the news that you don't know from the past week. It's the underreported news, the news that you should have heard about but didn't make headlines. Then I sit down with author and scholar Andre Perry to talk about his new book, Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. This is a fantastic book and truly insightful interview. We talked about housing before as part of the news, but finally had an expert on to help us make sense of it. My advice for this week is to make the ask. You might not always get what you want, but you certainly won't get it if you don't ask for it. And I was at work recently and I, I like had this, I was like, can this thing do this thing? And I just put it in in the work slack and who knew that someone on our team like knew how to do it very quickly. He did it. And I like felt like I was being dramatic if I'd asked, but this was like, it was just easy for him to do. It was very hard for me to do, but it was one of those things that like, sometimes you just gotta ask and like be open to a no, but if you don't ask, you'll never know. Hey family, welcome to Pod Save the People. We're so excited to be back with you for another week of news and great interviews. I'm Kaya Henderson and you can find me on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. I'm Milesy Johnson. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Feral Rapture. And this is DeRay at D-R-A-Y on Twitter. So um, this week is actually the 30th anniversary of the LA riots, which for me in my short life, short life, maybe some longer than others, but uh, for me, (laughs) it was a seminal moment in terms of the history of this country, in terms of my consciousness um, as an African-American woman living in America. Um, 30 years ago, literally like LA burned because of a series of events, um, including the killing of a young African-American woman by a Korean, I think she was a Korean shopkeeper. We saw um, the brutal beating of Rodney King on camera, which I think was probably the first time outside of the civil rights movement that we saw police beating up um, pedestrians and um, the whole world. I, I, I was in college at the time. It was my senior year of college. And I remember watching this stuff on TV, watching fires, watching looting, watching these people pull this man out of a truck and beat the smack out of him. And literally, like, it was the first time in my conscious world, I had to be about 21, 20, I think I was 20, almost turning 21 at the time, where, you know, for us, history, uh, this kind of violence had only really happened historically, right? We saw tapes from the civil rights movement with people getting hosed and beaten and dogs turned on people. But this was real life, like happening right now, not in some, you know, Southern town, but in Los Angeles, California. And it was staggering to watch it all in real time on TV. 
and to really ask ourselves, what did this mean for our world? What did this mean for us as Black people that like you could just so wantonly, like it was jarring to think that like you could see white people beating, white policemen beating up a Black man who had done nothing or to see um, a shopkeeper kill a, a little girl. I mean, she was a teenager. And um, it was for me, it was my first like, the world does not make sense kind of moment. And the world especially does not make sense for us as African-Americans after feeling like, you know, we we had overcome for the most part. And oddly enough, 30 years later, it's deja vu all over again, right? I feel like over the last few years, we've seen nothing but a proliferation of, of you know, police beating people and killing people on camera in real time. Like now this is, at that time, we hadn't seen this before. And now like this is just par for the course. It is it's what happens. We continue to see people um, making gross generalizations about us that end up in our deaths and violence against us. And so it's interesting to think at this particular moment when I think about where we are in this country, how divided we are, how pessimistic people are about, you know, what's happening, how broken we are after coming off of a global pandemic, to think we are probably right back in the same place, if not worse, um, than we were 30 years ago with the LA riots. I don't know. What were y'all doing? Miles, where are you crawling? Were you a star in the sky? <laughs> what was going on? <laughs> no, I was I was thinking how like sometimes um you know, things like heirlooms and inheritances are always kind of associated with money. But I think of um, for when it comes to like black, the black struggle, how inheritances and heirlooms are um, like given. And, I'm, and I was thinking about what it means to be born in 91 like I was and be in, in, in inherit like the L.A. riots, um, Rodney King, these different these different things and how that shaped my generation, because I think that it's interesting that I'm like I'm in a generation that has um, some of us. That's not like not a blanket statement at all, but like some of us have really um, associated with and embraced like the ideas and theories behind Afro pessimism, and I think that that can only happen in like a in in a, in a generation that was born uh, in the, in the in the 90s and and really after. I was, it's just, it's just kind of wild that that happened in 92 and then I'm thinking about Columbine and then I'm thinking about 9-11 and then I'm thinking about the Great Recession and two Trump eras and I'm, or excuse me, two um, Bush eras and, um, and Trump and I'm like, oh, it like, this generation inherited a type of like pessimism that I don't think and type of nihilism that I don't think, um, I think it's new. I think it's new. And I think that um, just hearing you talk about it and, t- and talking about your view of things post and before the riots, it's interesting because I might have had more of a... Priv- I-, I-, I had a pretty privileged like life, but I still think that there was never a time where I thought everything was all good, you know? And I think that's because I was born with the LA riots and I was born with things. I just never, I never had that moment. I think that people who grew up in the specifically middle-class, the upper middle-class, hopeful black people who grew up in the seventies, right before, like, you know, before white flight and when everything was, we can all make it and the Cosby show was happening. I'm like all in the Huxtables. I think that there's a different type of 
hope that was that you know a different type of uh uh yeah oh my gosh uh, what do you what do you call that you are you are absolutely right um optimism i mean just this disillusionment is what i mean our world view was very different oh <laughs> yes for for your generation i mean you that is absolutely right the post civil rights generation right after civil rights those of us who grew up in the 70s and in the early 80s you know, had a bunch of markers that sort of showed that we were the promise of the civil rights movement and that we there was social mobility and we were buying houses and we were going to college and da 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 and all of this jazz. And I think for a minute, we thought, I mean, I, I like the book that changed my life, I always talk about is a book called Faces at the Bottom of the Well by Derek Bell. The subtext is, the subtitle is The Permanence of Racism. And he argues, like, what if we shan't overcome? What if racism is here to stay and it's never going away? And the book shocked the smack out of me because I was like, wait, what? Like, I'm a baby. I'm an integration baby, right? Like, I thought it was all going to be all right. And this was the first time that anybody was sort of challenging that. When I think about, I mean, when I think about where I am right now, when I think about what I've lived through over my soon-to-be 52 years... Miles, you are exactly right. Like we were, we had a set of expectations. We thought we could be the Cosby's. Some of us are the Cosby's, right? But like if you, but but it was against a backdrop of a completely different set of circumstances. And so I get why, I mean, the, the term Afro-pessimism, I always learn so much from you. I was like, Afro-pessimism, what is that? I'm Googling on my thing. I'm about to order this book about Afro-pessimism because I think that is where a lot of us are right now. So thanks for introducing that concept. When I zoom back and I, I look at the facts of, of Rodney King and the riots, it is a reminder that the police uh, beat him on March 3rd, 91. There was a trial with the four officers. They did get indicted, but then the jury had no black people on it. They were they were found not guilty. And then on April 29th, when they were acquitted, that led to six days of riots. And I remember one of the things that I never could understand was, do you remember Kaya? Uh, Can we all just get along? Do you remember that? Yeah, and I was like, "Yes, where did that come from?" You know, people would be like, "Rodney King, da da." And then I finally saw the footage because they have footage. So Rodney, so L.A. is burning, and the white people trot out Rodney King. They get Rodney King to do a press conference to try and calm the riots down and say, "Can't we all just get along?" And like, I don't know why that that moment for me is one of the wildest things. Like, you just beat this man almost to death nobody's held accountable for it. And then y'all are like essentially forcing him to get on TV and try and calm the rides down. And it was just such a, such a reminder of the way that this country just uses and abuses black people over and over, but needs them to like try and calm things down. And remember, you know, it's interesting. The federal government's response to the police is born out of the LA riots. So we all live in a moment where police departments come in and do pattern and practice investigate. Like the idea that the DOJ can investigate a police department is a relatively new thing that comes out of the LA riots for the, for the federal government to do a consent decree is a novelty of, of, of the LA riots. And, you know, until Obama, there really weren't a whole lot. And Obama did a did more than everybody else. And that was three a year. So it's like, even when you think about like deep structural change that comes from these, it's like, you know, and, and I do hope that the challenge that we see in this moment is that 
I don't know, we try to make sure this never happens again, that like we can do something. This was the first viral moment. And if not for the riots, people wouldn't have paid attention at all. Like shout out to people willing to be like, you know, we will destroy all of this. Uh, and LA and the country actually did put up put up real things on the table to make sure the riot stopped. I'll stop there though. And Miles, I'm interested in Kaya, when we note the presence of Afro-pessimism and what does it mean in this sort of moment, um, how do you not, or, or do you get, are, are you an Afro-pessimist, Miles? Like, how do you, how do you situate yourself in that moment? How do you fight off the pessimism or, or do you just sit in it? Like, what does that look like? And same thing for you, Kaya. You know, I'm a, I'm a child of um, my ancestors in Christ. No, <laughs> I don't, I don't hyper identify with any political or intellectual theory. Um, well, I guess that's not true. I do definitely consider myself a black queer feminist, but like, as far as that train of thought, I definitely like to, but I, I, I think the usefulness of it is looking at it objectively and looking at it as like a really good argument to the nature of America. And I'm not like an expert on the theory at all. I'm still learning just like everybody else. But what I think I find it really useful is this idea about really seeing blackness as something that has been um, projected on the people and what that symbolizes. And can you transcend what that definition is when you weren't the one to create that definition? So if you if you're using black and in the in the tongue of English, black has always meant death, always meant demise, always meant um, so, uh, something violent and something and 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 and, and, and beast like. Then could you re, could you redefine it? Is the is is it has anything gone wrong when you color when you have already named black this and then you color a whole people that has anything gone wrong when we do see somebody get called an animal or get shot or um or or be overly sexualized? You know, and I think that. You know, no matter if you agree on it or if it makes you feel good or not or how it makes you feel in your intimate personal life, I think it's a useful perspective to consult because you really have to look at the nature of this nation. And I think that's what it does. And I think that not having a romantic honeymoon era with with America has helped members of my generation arrive at those opinions faster and I think less um, and more sturdy because there was never... uh, this over romanticization of what's going on for a lot of us, you know, and, and for this nation. Whereas I think sometimes the pre LA riots and the post LA riots <laughs> is like, it's a struggle for some people. But I'm like, I never, I was never in love with America in that way. I was never, I, you know, I never even, I, I, I never liked it. And, you know, I, I can go on for days, but I just thought about like even the hip hop generation in the 90s. Like, like even how, like, hip-hop happened in N.W.A. and Little Cam, there was already this divide between respectability and what was just young. And I think that I, there that, that struggle between two type, different types of Black people was already happening. And I just, like, inherited, like, a great divide where I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I never liked America. Like, that's fine. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a scandalous thing to say in front of, you know, my peers, but it's scandalous to others, you know, to an, a, another group of Black folks who maybe did love America at one time or still do and it's still struggling and reconciling how that feels. Mm. Um, I don't know about love America, but I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the the question around, like, I, 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 there, I'm reading about Afro-pessimism and 
I, I, I can't say I subscribe to or don't sub- subscribe to, but there's a phrase in this article that I'm looking at that says um, that Frank B. Wilderson III, who wrote a book called Af- Afro-Pessimism, sketches a map of the world in which Black people are everywhere integral, but always excluded. And that's not the definition of black of Afro pessimism, but I think that for me captures a lot of how I feel about black people in America, right? That like if you look at fashion, if you look at music, if you look at food, if you look at at you know, we built this country. Everything that is cool or fashionable or whatever, black people have their hand in. And we are consistently excluded from all of the spoils of or the fruits of our creativity, of our labor, of our whatever. And so it it so I, I think I even while living in the optimistic 70s and 80s or whatever the case may be, um, I'm also the hip hop generation. I'm also a skeptic. I'm also a realist and a pragmatist. And so I th- and I think that um, you know I think living as a black person in America like means that there is always conflict. There is always, I don't know how to, I am, I'm generally an optimist. Um, And I feel like that the optimism that I have helps to save my life because if not, I would be destructive. I would be enraged all the time. I'm enraged all the time. I just don't act on my rage or I try to challenge my power, channel my powers for good. Um, But I mean, if you're real, if you live in black in America, like there's a lot to be pessimistic about friends. And so for me, the hopefulness that I try to hold on to between my faith, between my friends and my family and who I surround myself with and between the impact that I try to have in this world is my optimism. Cause if you just look at the facts of the matter, we got a lot to be pessimistic about. But I, I do think that is what is cool or interesting about Afro pessimism and how I received it was that if a if 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 a group of people were were stolen and arrived here as, you know, farming and housekeeping technology and not people, then nothing has gone wrong when those people are just exposed disposed of in the in the the spark that I think rejects like a type of intimate personal spiritual pessimism is the fact that we can break up with America and still live a life <laughs> that so 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 many people's so many black folks's ideas of living a good life is so married to America that saying that America is helpless means that they're saying that their life is helpless where it's like you can you know I was reading so many articles 2019, that might have been Holy Spirit, child. I was reading so many articles 2019 about, you know, Ghana citizenship and all these other things. And I'm like, oh, you could just start a different life. Like, this America conversation, I inherited. It's, it was an, it's an arranged marriage of oppression that you think that, oh, I there's no other choice, but there is. You know, and you can, you can go find that choice. And we wouldn't be the first generation of Black folks to say, I'm actually divorcing this whole thing. And... I I I I pray slightly that y'all figure it out. Listen, I I got me a little place outside of this these United States of America. <laughs> when it goes down, does it have a guest house? When it house? goes down, I I don't have. I got room for you, bro. I got room for you. <laughs> 
you'll be surprised how many times this week with DeRay I have talked about your second home. I said, that's my goal. I've been telling DeRay, I'm like, that's what I'm trying we to do. Can... <laughs> I want us to tape the pod from Anguilla. Come on. Listen. <laughs> That would be fun. It is to such a good reminder, Miles, this push about the end of America as people talk about it or the end of this configuration of society is not the end of us as people. And I think you're right that people get them people get them confused and conflated. And and when the lead Afro pessimists say things like, you know, we have to end the world, da 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 that in, in some ways is actually not defeatist, right? It's an acknowledgement that like the rules of the game set up in this way actually don't work. And the only way to get to a better place is to just end this. Like we can't tanker, we can't repackage, we can't try and dress it up. Like we actually have to end the thing. And I do think that the language being so intense sort of forces you, like you gotta pick a side, like you gotta put a stake in the ground. Like you actually don't get to play in the middle. And I think so many people him and ha and wanna play in the middle. And and I think we'll never ever get free in that way. Part of it's like intellectual theater too, because when you hear the end of the world, because worlds, because worlds are what creates a world are leaders, cele- uh, uh, cultural moments, ideas, social norms. So worlds end all the time naturally. That's a cycle of people and community together. It's worlds, a new world beginning and a new world ending. You know, and you can see that in the sixties and seventies and eighties. But people conflate. And I think that's part of the intellectual theater because I think that's. I think people know that that people conflate the idea of a world with the earth or with the planet, and those aren't all the same things. Worlds, you, a, a, a planet is not going to end. That's that's a that's a different thing. Earth is not going to end. Maybe the citizens who are occupying that might have some cycles in and out. Um, shout out to the dinosaurs, but <laughs> you know the the planet's not going to end. We don't have control over that, but worlds do. And I think um, part of it is just again just playing on that like intellectual theater of knowing that people conflate it all in that kind of um, apocalyptic speech, really getting people's attention and really scaring people and disturbing something in people's spirits to see like how radical are you. Um, but I. I yeah, but I think after a pandemic in I, I, a war in Russia, I'm like, we can put we can put that language down because it's getting a little too close. Say what you mean. That moves us right into my news about um, the banning of menthol cigarettes, which uh, was announced this week. The FDA is moving to ban the sale of menthol cigarettes. And my news is about how the tobacco industry actually targeted Black Americans with menthol cigarettes. It's a very sort of interesting history. Um, But before I give you the history, let me just give you the like quick and dirty on the fact of the matter. So this ban um, will likely have the deepest impact on Black smokers. Um, In fact, um, the the FDA specifically noted that banning menthol will probably save the lives of between 92,000 and 238,000 African Americans. Um, 85% of the people who use menthol cigarettes are African Americans, um, compared to only 29% of white smokers who use menthol cigarettes. Menthol is a chemical that comes from the mint plant and it can also be made in a lab synthetically, but it's added to cigarettes to make smoking less harsh. Um, it cools the throat and it makes the smoking appear, um, experience more appealing. About 18.5 million Americans smoke menthol cigarettes 
and uh, that their sale makes up about one third of the $80 billion U.S. cigarette market. The thing about this is that this was an intentional systemic commitment to um, marketing to the Black community. Um, How did this happen? So in 1964, federal regulators barred tobacco companies from advertising to young people. So cigarette companies used to advertise on college campuses. They would give out free cigarettes to people under 21. Um, They were doing all of the marketing things to get young people to smoke. And in 1964, um, the federal regulators said no more. And so they decided, actually, we're going to pivot to aggressively marketing towards Black communities. And they did this across a number of fronts. So they advertised heavily in Black publications like Ebony and Jet. Um, And those magazines became so dependent on tobacco advertising that they actually didn't say a word about um, how devastating the effects of smoking could be on the Black community. They literally had a platform where they could have been advocating for our health and safety, but they were in big tobacco's pockets. And so um, magazines, billboards, all kinds of stuff. Um, The marketing industry went even deeper than that. And they went to influencers and the Black community. So they found barbers and they found um, community leaders and gave them free free cigarettes, bellhops and and people. They were building a ground game to get people who are influencers on the ground to smoke these menthol cigarettes and to give them out to their friends. They gave free samples out. They sponsored events like the Cool Jazz Festival where they had Dizzy Gillespie um, next to a pack of cools in their ads. Um, And in fact, like the, in 2009, the FDA banned flavored cigarettes from being manufactured or sold, but menthol cigarettes slipped in because the Congressional Black Caucus decided, wait, we get a lot of our campaign contributions and our support from Big Tobacco, so we don't want to mess with menthol. So literally in 2009, they banned flavored cigarettes except menthol because of our leaders in the Black Congressional Caucus. Um, Now, the NAACP is super supportive um, about ending um, the sale of menthol cigarettes. Um, This will be a huge thing in terms of uh, Black men who have the highest rates of lung cancer in America. And so this is going to save Black lives. But it's just so interesting to me how literally like capitalism works in a systemic way to continue. I can't sell the young people. I'm going to sell the Black people. And I'm going to figure out all of the different ways to sell to Black people. This has happened, I mean, 64 to 2022 is like almost, I don't know how many years, 60, 70, 80, 90, 2010, 50 years of explicit marketing to African-Americans around menthol menthol cigarettes. And so um, excited about the ban, even more excited about the fact that we are saving Black lives through this ban on menthol cigarettes.
Yeah, I think that one of the things that when I was like reading the one while I was reading the article that I felt a little ashamed about because I started I started looking. We have like a lot of these old ebony's um, in, in in our home that I watch, and some of them are filled with um, just like tobacco ads and stuff like that. And I was like looking at them, and I was like, these are such beautiful images, and they're so and like and, kind of, and for whatever reason I. I connected, not for whatever reason, I connected that strategic, um, like, uh, marketing to what McDonald's did when I was a kid and how, like, there was this moment where McDonald's was just, like, said, like, oh, we are black and we are going to have people scat and, um, jazz and, and, and hip hop all through our commercials and how, and how, like, I don't, it's just, it's, 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 it's so violent because as black people, cool and cult in our culture is just what we is is our wealth. So when you figure out a way to kind of get into that and to make it feel like it's a part of our lifestyle and a part of our cool, it's 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 a type of soft genocide, like it, for the for the um for the, for the sake of selling things. But also, I wanted to like ask just how everybody felt because I I do take a stance where. So what does this mean for a situation like Eric, like Eric Gardner? Like what is it like? Who's gonna like th- this? Like now criminalization of cigar- cigarettes and and, and certain t- type of cellar- um, cigarettes is going to create a black market. And I think like in my head, I'm like, what? So what does this mean for situations now that this is now a criminal offense? Because it always comes down to that when things that to me are social problems get handled politically and legally. Um, yeah, that was just an open-ended question. Like, what, 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 what are, what do y'all think about that? Now, say there are a lot of things around the menthol. So I've never smoked, and I didn't. I honestly didn't realize that. Like everybody, all my, all the people in my family who smoke smoke menthol cigarettes. So that I thought those were the only cigarettes. I didn't know there were other types of cigarettes because that was the only thing you could buy in Baltimore <laughs> that I remember. And I remember having to go to the store and buy the cigarette. Remember when you used to get sent to the store to buy cigarettes? I mean, now they can't do that. But like, I remember having to go to the corner store and buy cigarettes. And uh, so a couple of things that. I... Oh, you do. <laughs> Kai, you remember that, don't you? <laughs> I do. I do. Yeah. Uh, People of a certain vintage. Right, right. <laughs> I remember that. Go to the store and get some, get some cigarettes for, for so-and-so. Um, I didn't know that people who smoke menthol smoke more. I didn't know that. That like part of what the menthol flavoring does is that it is this a little bit pain painkiller, a little bit minty taste. So it um, it masks the intensity of the tobacco. I also didn't know that menthol is harder to quit. That research by the FDA and the Tobacco Products Scientific Advisory Committee showed that people who smoke menthol cigarettes are more likely to be dependent and have trouble quitting. I didn't know that black men and women have higher rates of lung cancer. Also didn't know that. Um, and I, you know, we talked about it, but I really had no clue that flavored cigarettes were banned and that this was an exclusion from the ban and that this is the catch up. So like just the history of all this, I didn't know. And Miles, to your point, I'm, I'm nervous about a lot of things. I, I want people, I remember my father trying to stop smoking and he would do all types of stuff. You know, my father raised us. So it was just the three of us, me, my sister and him. He'd be hanging out the window smoking. You're like, Daddy, it's cigarettes. We can smell it. You're like, why are you? We come in like, you smoke it? He's like, no. It's like, ah, we smelt it, buddy. And he's literally like, the window open, head out. The- I'm like, okay. So I, 
am happy that he finally stopped and also think about how dramatically better his health got when he stopped smoking because he used to smoke so much when we were younger. And the idea that this could help many more people by like not masking the danger of, of, of cigarettes could actually be really helpful. And to your point, you know, Eric Garner was Lucy's. It's like, how do you make sure this doesn't become like another tactic of criminalization for black people? Uh, that there is not a black market that that comes that actually that, you know, we're having a problem with fentanyl and all these other things now that like laced menthol black market cigarettes is probably a bad thing. So I'm hopeful that with this ban that there is a lot of money put towards helping people transition out of it and that we don't dump more money into incarceration. I don't know. I don't know what you do. I don't think you keep them legal or you keep them on the market. I do think that this comes to a general conversation about like who is reigning in the police and, you know, it's not the government right now. Yeah, I just like think like in my head, I'm like, well, wouldn't the answer be if you did all this and you have jazz festivals and beautiful ads around this, why don't you do the same community efforts in order to eradicate smoking as you did doing it instead of like just making it like a legal political thing? Like, I don't know, tobacco free jazz festival, Eric Badu and Jill Scott or something. Come on, like figure, (laughs) get the same, get the same marketing ideas behind that as you did when with getting it and not like risking you know, to me, it's still, it's, it, it, it still feels real dangerous to me. The whole thing about like banning the sale of it is the thing that's interesting. Like, why wouldn't you just ban people from making them, right? And that way the burden is on the, the producer as opposed to the consumer. But I think about this the same way I think about um, like the Johnson and Johnson um, baby powder thing, which we did a year or so ago on the pod where we found out that um, Johnson and Johnson, that the, that the powder causes uterine and ovarian cancer or some, whatever kind of female cancer it causes. I can't remember off the top of my head, but so sales are prohibited. Sales are not even prohibited in the United States actually, but they are not prohibited. Johnson Johnson just pivoted And they're selling the powder all over the world, right? So people in the Caribbean and Latin America and Africa and Asia are still using the bad powder. Johnson & Johnson just pivoted from, you know, marketing in, in, in the United States. And so banning the sale of it in the United States just means that there could be criminalization. The burden is really on the mid-level people who sell this and the consumers who are craving, demanding, who can't stop, right? Um, And so I do think that there should be some kind of a burden on the people who got our folks hooked on this to help get our folks unhooked on this. Maybe they're also paying for whatever, the nicotine patch or whatever, you know, things I don't smoke either, so I don't know anything about this. But whatever, you know, cessation strategies have been proven to be effective, why not make the industry that hooked people on this and benefited from this bear some responsibility in cleaning it up? That seems, just banning the sales seems like a short step. But if we were really, really about it, um, we would look to remediate what the harm that has been done. But you know, that's not how things work in 
these United States of America. Not baby powder and menthol cigarettes being out. That's a whole generation of aunties just like, what are you trying to tell me? Say it. What are you trying to tell me? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Up up and down, we in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. So I wanted to bring um, a profile um, from GQ that I was reading. Um, My day job, my day job is I work for For the Girls, which is a nonprofit that is like a mutual aid um, profit to help people, trans folks, specifically black trans folks, get um, uh, uh, gender affirming surgeries and housing. Um, But I love this article that somebody sent me that um, was talking about CN Dora Show, who founded Glitz, who that is a multi, um, now has has gained um, millions of dollars to help black trans folks. And it started so early on. And it was really, um, the the article says um, she's the godmother of of the movement in in certain types of efforts for black trans, um, for black trans folks. And I think that often... um, I think sometimes we can get in these like little silos where we feel like something just happened or people who are on the shoulders of other people don't necessarily always get um, get like highlighted and those people who other people are like, you know, on the shoulders of we don't we we don't talk about them. And it was just like such a moving article. And she just has I I think I'm going to be meeting her in a couple of couple of weeks because of an opportunity that just came to me but she just has such a um interesting and and fun and funny and not funny story but um just such an interesting and beautiful way of talking about her story rather and um so as well as like housing she's also helped with um bailout efforts she's um she's spoken to many of um other and mentored other um black trans folks who want to do their own nonprofits, and she's really been doing this work and i wanted to bring her to y'all and talk and talk about it and 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 see what y'all y'all thoughts were about it because you know I knew we were probably going to have some darker news and I always want to when I can highlight a black trans or and or queer person who I think is um necessary to get their flowers and she really moved me and energized me and made me um see the work that I'm doing now with for the girls as a part of a legacy um and as a part of and as a part of like a link and not just something that just came out because you know Four years ago, people discovered that Black trans people exist and were like, well, maybe they need money. You know, it's like, no, this work has been happening for a very long time. I think that's the thing that um, 
that I was reminded of in this article, any fight for liberation, you know, usually has been happening for a long time before the media gaze and the philanthropic gaze and whatever other gaze is, (laughs) G-A-Z-E, you know, realize it. Um, And I think it is an important encouragement to those of us who do this work, um, the hard work, the unsexy work, the work that people don't want to recognize, um, that like you you do it and you put in the time and the years and and at some point it is your moment and so I was I hadn't I, I hadn't heard about this woman um, but I think what is most inspiring to me is the the caring about people as people it doesn't matter you know, who you are, what you look like or whatever, whatever, we have an obligation to one another to take care of one another, to house people, to feed people, to, and I understand that some folks in our, in our country don't believe that. But when I think about who we are as a culture, we take care of each other. Um, You know, I think for what I, in my experience, lots of black families that I know have had LGBTQ or trans members of our family. And we might not have been able to talk about it out loud, but we've always taken, some of us, not all of us, have taken care of our people. And this just reminds me the the affirmations that I want y'all to live, I want y'all to be housed, I want you to and I'm willing to fight for it. There are people all across this country who are doing that in small ways that don't get recognized. And so it was really nice to see her in GQ in all of her glory um, as a sort of payoff and recognition for the work that she's done over decades. And so shout out to all of the people who are doing work in unheralded spaces with populations that it seems like people don't care about. Um, we see you, we support you. Um, we have an obligation to, to I think, if you care about Black people, um, to care about all Black people. And Black trans people are our family members, are our friends, are our people. And so, yeah, this was this brought the light, Miles. Thank you for always bringing the light. <laughs> the thing that I that made me think about this is that you know, especially when we talk about. Uh, civil rights or queer work or the intersection between the two is that so often the storytelling is on the biggest personalities that it becomes like a personality driven conversation. It's about who was on this show or who took a photo at this thing or who is like, that's how history remembers. And what I loved about this piece is that this was a piece about the work that the uncovering was like, well, what was the work that she's doing what was the work that she did why was this work important who failed her when she needed housing when she was 20 and 21 like what systems failed her that forced her to do this thing that she's been doing not even quietly but without sort of mainstream recognition until now and i and i want i hope that if there's anything we learn from these last seven years of protests that like we start to actually write more pieces like this more pieces that are not just she's a good person, people like her, da da da, but that actually like help us all understand like what is the work that people do? Because the reality is, is that there's a lot of incredible work happening across the country in pockets and communities at scale. Like work is happening. And sometimes that work is happening in ways that don't translate to the the sexiest personality stories that we've told 
for 50 years. But like, I think the only way we'll get free is actually by understanding what the work is that has to happen. And what was cool about this was just seeing such a beautiful examination of her work over time. So my news, I had to read three times because I thought that I must have been reading something wrong. I was like, this can't be right. I was like, let me. So the, the Shawnee City Council in Kansas City, the Shawnee City Council, or like outside of Kansas City, voted 8-0 that, to ban co-living. So what they did is that they banned the practice and they defined co-living as a group of at least four unrelated adults living together in a dwelling unit. And for the purposes of the law, if one of the four people, if one of the people in the group is not related to each other, then the entire group is deemed unclassified. I mean, un, the entire group is deemed in violation of the law. And, you know, we talk about the criminalization of homelessness, da, 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 and that really normally is like what happens, how we criminalize people for being homeless. And that is where I've always seen the conversation. This was the first time that I ever saw a law that is aimed to make people homeless. I just didn't even, I, it sort of blew my mind that they would even suggest that like, we're going to ban co-living really so we can keep people who cannot afford to own a place so we can like essentially keep them out of our neighborhoods. And this is like a back-end way to do it. And I don't even, you know, I was reading it and I literally could not think of an argument that was not racist or classist that you would ever even do this. Like, what does it mean? And for who is enforced? Like the enforcement mechanism on this is going to be wild. It is going to be me calling, being like, I think Kaya has three people in her house that are not related to her. The police show up and ask for your blood work. I mean, how do you know if you my cousin or not? You know what I mean? Like, what did that even, like the enforcement mechanism on this is crazy. The the sheer premise of the law is really wild in a moment where rent is astronomical, where people, even people who make six figures can't afford houses, the idea that living with somebody who, what does it even mean for partners who are moving? I just don't even know. Like the implications of this are so wild. And again, when I saw the article, I thought that it must have been a spoof. And then I realized it was not. Yeah, this seemed crazy. This this is absolutely crazy to me, um, given how much housing prices are climbing. They say in the article that the average home price in Shawnee County rose 37% from 2017 to 2021. Um, and of course, wages aren't rising at the same rate. I saw a piece on social media maybe two weeks ago where um, a young person was talking about the rising cost of housing and how she thought that if she went to college and did all of the things that we tell people to do, that she would be able to, with her you know, partner or husband or whatever, afford a modest starter home like in her parents' neighborhood. And she talks about this house that when it was built, you know, was in 2014, um, was was sold for $185,000. And she thought, okay, right, like that's it. That's what I'm trying to get to. And she's only been out of college for four years. Eight years later, this house just sold for $953,000, right? And she was like, y'all got me messed up out here, right? Like I did all of the things. I went to college, I blah, blah, blah. And the things that you said could happen for me can't happen. Like this America is not okay. And that's why I'm pessimistic. And that's why I don't want to work hard. And that's why I'm still living with my parents and whatnot. 
And here we're finding people who find creative ways to make living work, right? To make living work. All right. I mean, and it's uh, to me less than ideal. Maybe it's cool because, you know, we're building community or whatever, whatever. But the thought of living with four people <laughs> and sharing bathrooms and kitchens and whatnot is not exactly appealing to me. But if it works for you and that's the way that you afford your lifestyle, I'm all for it. Why would a government say this is not okay? The only people that this benefits are the real estate industry, right? And the real estate lobby is heavy, my friends. Um, And so this just, I mean, unless you are offering significant affordable housing, which not many people are doing in this day and age, this just seems it not just, I mean, it seems really cruel. Everything everybody said is ridiculous. Um, I live a really, 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 really blessed life. Like, I'll, I sometimes I'll like cry sometimes because I'm like so blessed. And me and DeRay have been friends for a very long time. So he's been friends with me when it has been rougher than rough. <laughs> um, and I think about how, you know, of course, I know this is um, like a city, state, like statewide. Uh, uh, like uh, movement, but I also think about like what if this was to happen in New York City, or if this began began to like continue to continue to grow. And I think about how um, when I first came to New when I first came to New York City, I was living with two other people, but it could have easily how New York City housing works. It could have easily been four, and you know what I mean, or it could easily have like we could have easily like, easily done that. And how me being able to have a dream, have a goal, and then also find a, a room, you know, like finding finding a room in a place so I can bridge and finally be able to do the work that I wanted to do and just have somewhere where I can lay my head while I was just kind of pounding the pavement and kind of being really um, ambitious and um, steadfast about my dream and my goal and what I wanted from this city in my life, that if that was robbed from me, I would just be a totally different person. And if I was forced to go somewhere where I could afford by myself in a, in a, in a city at that time, then I would have been like a totally different person. And, and I, it just really saddens me for it just it just it just saddens me when I know when people are together unrelated yes the idea of like this big house family community things happening but it's like no these are a lot of people who are using you know their living situation as a halfway house to a steadier more consistent living arrangement and is and and, and you every single day when you go to bed you say this is not gonna be my life or forever this is just temporary and one day i'll be able to have two roommates and one day i'll be able to live by myself and then one day i'll be able to have a place with two bedrooms living by myself and you know what i mean and 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 do that and to rob people of that is really the antithesis of what the american dream is and 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 being able to kind of sacrifice and 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 kind of go through a fire in order to get to, you know, that sweet spot of life and the fact that that's getting robbed of people really upsets me and, like, hits home because I'm like, if that happened to me, <laughs> like, it, like that, it, it would have just changed everything. And, yeah, it just makes me really, really sad. Don't go anywhere. More Podcast the People's coming. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.
This week, we welcome Andre Perry on. He is a nationally known and respected commentator on race, structural inequality, and education. Perry co-authored the groundbreaking 2018 Brookings Institution Report, The Devaluation of Assets in Black Neighborhoods, and is with us to discuss his new book called Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. Now, y'all know we've talked about racial discrimination in property appraisals and home inspections, but, but Dr. Perry and I get to the root of it all. His personal connection to the issue is fascinating, and how he used his own life to propel his research and activism. And I learned a ton in this conversation. I know you will too. Here we go. Dr. Perry, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod of the People. Hey, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be on. So uh, we've known each other for a while in the space, but we've never really talked about your research. And I'm excited about the book on housing. You know, we've covered, uh, and you know Kaya, but we've covered like the appraisal conversation. We've covered... The, like home inspection, we've covered the racial disparities as they popped up in the news. Why a book right now? Like, what was the impetus? Like, what led? Did you know you always want to write a book on housing? Was did it start as a book on incarceration and then it became a book on housing? Like, how'd the book come to be? Yeah, so I started measuring all the places or housing in all the places where my my father lived and died. And the woman I call mom lived. And, you know, you know, when you look at the built environment, you can see all of the different um, areas that impacted a person's life. Of course, both my mother and my father lived in areas that were redlined, where the um, federally backed homeowners loan corporation drew redlines around predominantly black neighborhoods, um, precluding them from the refinancing and other housing um, opportunities during the New Deal, and that lasted through through the 70s, at least formally. And then you also had highway construction. They both lived in an area where highway construction and other development literally pushed them out of, from their homes. Um, that's how I ended up in, in Wilkinsburg. They were both um, impact negatively impacted by the unfulfilled promises of urban renewal. They lived in areas where, where there was significant predatory lending and restrictive housing covenants were all around them. So they couldn't necessarily leave um, their areas because the, those other neighborhoods had whites only deeds in many cases. And so all of that has an impact on home values. Now, why that is important, home values are connected to how we finance schools, how we finance municipal services, um, infrastructure, all of those things. So I started just measuring the price of homes in today's context, because we know all those policies had, had, have an impact in today's world. And, and what we found initially wouldn't surprise people that in areas where homes, where there's few, if any, black people, where the share of the black population is less than a percent, homes on average are priced about $340,000. And if you go into neighborhoods where the share of the black population is 50% or higher, those homes on average are priced about half as much, about $180,000. Now, a lot of people will say, That's because of education. That's because of crime. But those are things you can control for in a study. And that's what we did. We took that absolute price 
and then we controlled for, or uh, and, and for those who aren't researchers, it, it essentially means uh, accounts for, uh, um, or to get an apples to apples comparison, you 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 have to just um, attend to these other things. So we attended to structural things. So the size of the home, the number of rooms, all the physical manifestations. But then we also controlled for neighborhood amenities. So we took into account education, crime, walkability, all those fancy Zillow metrics. So we can get an apples to apples comparison between homes in black neighborhoods and equivalent homes in equivalent, equivalent circumstances in white neighborhoods. And what we found pretty much astounds that homes in black neighborhoods are underpriced by 23%, about 48000 per home cumulatively. That's about $156 billion in lots equity. $156 billion in lots equity. And this is occurring all over the country. I just did a talk in, in Miami, um, West Palm Beach, area. Um, the, the average difference is about 20% there, about 41000 per home. And, and, and I'll just give you a, a little bit, a few other cities. Lynchburg, Virginia, and don't, you know, that name always throws me off, but Lynchburg, Virginia, there's an 81% difference between homes in black neighborhoods and homes in white neighborhoods. So if you helicoptered a home from a black neighborhood and placed it uh, in a uh, a neighborhood with similar social circumstances, it would increase in value by 81%. Rochester, New York, 65% difference. Jacksonville, 47%. Now, Detroit, the, the largest black city in the country, 37%. Now, there are places where home values are actually higher in black neighborhoods. Nashville, for instance, plus 10%. Wichita Falls, plus 16. Boston, Massachusetts now, uh, black neighbor, uh, average uh, homes in black neighborhoods are priced 23% higher than their white equivalent. But I always got to let people know that Boston is no less racist than Lynchburg, but the, the home prices are higher. But, you know, but I, I just want to make this point why this is important. Um, what is 156 billion in lost equity? Just to to give people some perspective, 156 billion would have financed more than four million black-owned businesses, based upon the average amount black people use to start their firms. It would have paid for more than eight million four-year degrees, based upon the average amount of a four-year diploma. It would have replaced the pipes in Flint, Michigan, three thousand times over covered nearly all of Hurricane Katrina damage, and it's doubled the annual economic burden of the opioid crisis. It's a big number. So I mentioned, um, bringing it all back home, so to speak, then that pun is intended, that, that that last point I made about the opioid crisis, if my father lived in a neighborhood where the home values were the, at the white rate or the market rate, he would have better resource schools. He would have better infrastructure, greater opportunities to start a business. His drug use probably would not be criminalized. 
his life and my life would have been fundamentally different. And, and, and that's why I always say, and throughout my book, Know Your Price, I say that there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve. That when things go wrong in black communities, we blame black people. We don't look at the wealth and opportunity that's extracted without anyone carrying a tiki torch, without anyone saying a racial epithet, even even to a certain extent without a, um, a, a criminal justice system um, um, uh, or a police system killing people. Wealth and opportunities just extracted from everyday housing policy. So that's what largely what my book is about, that it, it might be anchored in housing data, but it, then it touches upon its, its impact on education, its impact on health, impact on politics, and, and, and all sorts of on art and, and other areas. But constantly wealth is extracted from our communities. Now, when we think about the, the value of the houses being so wild, you know, it, it seems like a big part of that is the appraisal process. Is that right? Yeah. And hot and like, do we do we need new appraisers? Do people need to get penalized for being racist appraisers? Like, what's the fix? Uh, the, all of that. So, um, some of it is the the very practice of appra- appraisals. Now, um, we need appraisals. Well, some argue that we don't need appraisals, but the point of an appraisal is that uh, a bank won't lend to a person an amount that is higher than the, the home is worth. So if you're, um, if you're buying a home for 300000 and it appraises at $250,000, they are not going to uh, uh, give you a loan for 300000 And so um, the, the, um, how appraisals are done um, has a significant impact on whether or not you can buy a home. Now, it's also true that appraisals were used to keep black people from purchasing homes, particularly in white neighborhoods. So, you know, appraisers um, um, used to value black neighborhoods and black people differently. We were seen as a risk, and our neighborhoods were seen as risky. And so the, the practices that we, we still use still have some of um, um, the, the sort of mechanics of what was done in the past. So, and I'll just, and I'll show, I'll tell how that works. So appraise, uh, appraisals are largely done. There's other, there's many types of appraisals, but most are done using a price comparison approach, meaning to establish value, you compare a home to another in the same neighborhood to get a sense of value or, or, or several homes in the same neighborhood. Um, and, and, and when you're, so if you're buying a home or you're refinancing home, you'll hear this word called comps or comparables where they say, Hey, this home, um, down the street is 150,000. This home, um, up the street is 140,000. So your home is probably somewhere in that ballpark. The problem with that whole method that if you compare homes to 
others in a neighborhood that that has been discriminated against, you effectively just recycled discrimination over and over and over. Ah, you never get out of it. I didn't know that that's how I work. Clearly, I don't own a home. That's fascinating. That makes sense to me. Yeah. But, so how do you fix that, though? Oh, you, I mean, it, there's a number of ways. Just in my research, just as we went beyond the neighborhood to 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 look at comparable homes, you can. It, there's enough data out there now where you can use an entire metro area, and you can even go beyond that. I mean, you can, I mean, now the data is so rich, you can look at materials, you can look at, you know, all, all sorts of variables, put them in a model and establish um, um, a, a better sense of value. Um, but th- this, the, the other aspect of this is who's appraising, because all value, I don't care what you, I don't care if you're talking about leather jackets or you know, cars or homes, all value um, is socially constructed. You know, it's your, your social mores, the, your views on life determine whether or not those fancy Adidas should be worth 200 or $20. And so, um, so we know that who is um, who is appraising has a some impact on this, um, and right now ninety percent of appraisers are white. Ninety. Ninety percent. Yeah, ninety percent of it's actually using the last um, Bureau of Labor Statistics data. It's ninety six percent, but we know that's a sample. So look, give or take six percent. So I'll I'll say ninety percent. Ninety percent of appraisers are white. Seventy-five percent are male. And so there's a clear structural bias in the workforce. With that said, with that said, you can replace all the appraisers with people of color. If they use the same practices, you're still going to get similar results. And and so and a lot of people are now looking towards automated systems, um, in which you use AI technology uh, again to get more data from a larger um, catchment area to establish value. The problem with that theory is, um, or that work. Well, certainly tech can help if you have. Pro- I mean, programmers have the same biases as appraisers. So if you don't figure out ways to to build in anti-discrimination um, methods in your models, you'll actually make matters worse. So it's a complicated issue. Um, I'm fortunate. I've um, you know I've been involved heavily in the Biden administration's um, inner or it's the. Um, Interagency Task Force on Property Appraisal and Valuation Equity. It's, it's PAVE is the uh, what the acronym is. Uh, uh, again, that's Property Appraisal and uh, and Valuation Equity. And they just issued um, 21 action steps um, to improve the appraisal 
um, a situation in this country. Um, we've we've seen um, the anecdotal evidence of people, quote unquote, whitewashing their homes, removing all the black artif- uh, articles, artifacts. So the artwork, the clothing, the books, the hair products. So you got to get rid of your pink lotion and all that other stuff, you know, to so and then replacing those things with with artifacts that would suggest white people live there. And what happens is when they get a second appraisal, oftentimes that are, those appraisals come in hundreds of thousands of dollars higher. In the case of a couple in Marin County, $500,000 higher. Now we're talking West Coast market there. Um, um, in Indianapolis, 140000 um, In in Florida, 40% higher in the, in the, in the New York Times um, um, story. And so, um, so not only do we have the empirical evidence, the hard data, we also have uh, the data from lived experience, people doing their own experiments to, to, to uncover not just the discrimination, but the intrinsic value of whiteness. And so it's, it's, you know, we need this interagency task force to really take root. We need this issue to really rise up because, and I'm going to take it back to education. Um, and in so many areas, we say, if we can only fix the school, if we could only fix this and, and lose sight that these systems are interconnected to other systems. So you, you can't necessarily, um, you have limits on improving education if you don't improve health. You have limits on improving criminal justice if you don't improve health. You know, so that's why I started shifting my focus to say, you know, some, we always try to find, identify root causes. But for me, I also say, look, housing is a big root cause. But you know, but because we work in silos, everyone stays focused in their lane. So over the course of, you know, I'm getting, you know, a, there's a lot of gray hair, hairs in my, in my beard. So now I'm just starting to like to, to build that, that portfolio of, of, of issues to go from education, business development, um, housing, health, and, and look at that black tax because it's not enough to tell somebody, look, here's the, here's the appraisal gap. Here's the value gap. People ultimately want that value restored. And so that's where my work is headed now. now one of the last questions I'll ask you is uh, something that I learned in the book. You did this deep dive about uh, Detroit, can you talk about Detroit? Like why the history of, of Detroit and housing, like why was that important for you to include in the book? All, I literally knew none of those stories. Well, Detroit is personal for me because my father um, is from Detroit. My family's from Detroit. And they were actually part of an ongoing battle in public housing about who should get it and who should not. Now, People think of the projects now as being 
the last place of resort for black people. Um, but remember, there was a, a housing shortage for all people, um, and the fight for public housing, government-backed housing, was intense, where whites really claimed dominion of certain um, um, housing projects and, and, and housing um, funding, and and there were battles about who should get what, where should the homes be placed, and in Detroit, that was very contentious because of the rising factory work, the, the car industry at the time. People flocked to Detroit, including black people. Um, that drove the, one of the great migrations um, to the city. So black people came along with everybody else. And so housing was scarce. Um, they put up how, uh, public housing. Um, one of the housing projects, well, well now what's eventually called Sojourner Truth, um, uh, and, and that facility um, was supposed to be for white people. And there was a, literally a riot, um, um, an attack on black, uh, to prevent black residents from moving in um, when they decided that this, the Sojourner Truth would be for black people, white people literally took to the streets um, and, and rioted and, and injured several um, um, people were killed. Um, it, you know, just an, yet another <laughs> a story of a massacre, so to speak, um, around housing. Um, and why that story was important, my family had to move and look for adequate housing as a result. Now, and I also connect this to housing because um, people, a few years later, when black people started moving in to Detroit, getting housing in Detroit, and then there, were, there was white flight um, facilitated by housing policy, and the growth of the suburbs, the we always tend to um, forget that not only did white residents and workers leave, corporations left, taking their tax um, subsidies with them. And many of the white uh, 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 um, lawmakers at the time, elected officials, facilitated that exit. Leaving Detroit um, with l- l- less resources, less opportunity, less job, all those different things, simply because black people were were working in those areas. And and it, you know, fast fast forward, um, you know, you have the sordid stories of Kwame um, uh, Fitzpatrick and his wild affairs and. Um, and and it, it became a story of bad leadership on his part. And certainly there were problems there. We should never excuse that. But the, the, the reason why, the real reason why Detroit struggled was because corporate corporations abandoned the city. White people abandoned the city. And the people who stayed were the, the Detroiters 
who have always fought for that city. And so when I wrote Know Your Price, I situated my father in that in that entire um, sociopolitical conversation. You know, he he eventually became addicted to heroin. Um, he you know he lived in Pittsburgh, bounced between Pittsburgh and Detroit, as a lot of people did, because you know of factory work. But eventually, like I mentioned earlier, he was murdered. I mean, he was imprisoned. He was murdered inside of Jackson State Penitentiary, which is right outside of Detroit. Um, and, and, and I, and, and so I wanted to create a, a different narrative for my father because so often we hear about people who use drugs, um, that they made bad choices. Well, the problem with that is that the built environment, the sociopolitical environment really shapes what kind of choices you have. And, and we don't talk about the choices of the politicians, the choices of the corporations, and the people who ran them to impoverish a city. So for me, um, I really wanted to create a new narrative for my for my father and and for others. You know, so this is a policy book. However, I wrap policy around the lived experiences of people including my family, um, because, you know, we need a redemptive narrative. <laughs> we need other stories being told about our struggle. You know, his drug use should not have been one, a story about um, his bad choices. It could have very easily been a story about the abandonment of white people and corporations from Detroit. Got it. So the two questions we ask everybody. The first is, um, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Oh, man. And, I, and, and it's related to my work. One is from, and I always, I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly, um, Vietnamese philosopher Tic Tac Han, who um, said once, and it always stuck with me when I heard this, that if you're growing a head of lettuce and the, head, and the lettuce is not growing, you don't blame the lettuce. You look to see if it's getting rainwater. You look to see if the soil's enriched. You look to see if it's getting sunlight. You never blame the lettuce. When things go wrong in black communities, we blame the lettuce. What I try to do with my research is look for the rainwater, look for the soil, look for the sunlight. And it really shapes how I view the world. And it's one of the reasons why I say there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve. That we have to be focused on the overarching structural conditions that will enable or retard growth among individuals. And, and I just want to be clear. I believe in personal responsibility. I, re- I believe in choices. These things matter. But the our choices um or i should say that race predicts for far too much of our social outcomes that belies the choices that everyone makes that i mean you know everybody uses this example but that 
you know, everyone uses drugs, but black people are incarcerated more. You know, everyone makes um, uh, choices, certain choices around sex. Um, Some people are punished more. So, you know, I, you know, what I try to do is, is take on um, this, um, this, that saying of don't blame the lettuce. I mean, I, I really, it really has shaped the way I think about research and, and where we should go um, moving forward. Got it. And the last question is, what do you say to the people who, um, who feel like they've done everything they were supposed to do? They read your book, read mine, stood in the street, called, emailed, testified, and the world hasn't changed like they wanted it to. What do you say to those people? Oh, man, let me tell you. Um, I've seen change um, in the last two years, three years, that I, I haven't seen um you know, in the last 50 years. And I say this, that when you work on an issue hard and long, understand that the fruits of that labor won't show up for 30, 40 years. The reason why I'm having success around this housing, um, uh, these housing issues and these structural um, issues at a, a, a policy level it's because people were working on this stuff in the 60s. I just, I, you know, I love to think I'm handsome, smart, charismatic, and all these other things. But the reality is that people who worked on um, the Fair Housing Act set me up for this. As I'm setting up future researchers for success 30, 40 years from now. So when people sort of take this very pessimistic approach about life, I go, wow, you know, it, we gotta be, you know, yes, change isn't going to, you know, be dramatic in our lifetime and in, 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 in a short period of time, this idea of immediate gratification has never occurred. But you, you do need to have faith that your contributions matter. Maybe not for the, in the immediate, but certainly for the future. And, and so this is uh, um, a long thing coming. I mean, it's a, a long-range approach. And then the other thing is what gives me hope and energy is – looking at the doers and this is what i do love uh, did learn a lot from education it's you know those teachers the male people the the bus drivers the the people who are actually doing and not sort of thinking all the time you know i'm privileged i can write i can ideate i can you know meander on subjects at my leisure. Um, but there are people who are in the trenches every single day, working, 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 helping other people. And I always remind myself that I should look to them to gauge what's happening in the world. Um, certainly I look at mac- macro level statistics and and, and outcomes at that level. 
But there's oftentimes they obscure what's happening on the ground day to day. And and so for me, um, some of these doers really inspire me um, because if you get locked in to um, a data and in a framework, and this is the other thing that really makes people pessimistic, we're constantly looking at black people as deficits. We don't look at each other as strengths. At, at, at our strengths. And that very frame, when you compare white people to black people without controlling for those variables, like I talked about earlier, you would think, you, you have to think, oh, black people need to catch up or, or white people are this much better. No, in many cases, that is not the case. And why do we compare black people to white people when many cases is an apples to apples comparison? No, so we need to, to reframe a lot of how we look at black America, how we look at people in general, and, and, and in this sort of deficit framing of, of, of particularly of people of color in this country. So, uh, you know, that's what I would tell people uh, who said, nothing's changing, nothing's changing. I was like, well... You know, in in the way from your vantage point, that might be the case. I guarantee you, the people who worked on the 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 Fair Housing Act, they look at my work and say, "Oh, that's a step forward." So, for me, I, I think, um, you know, that's what I would share. That's what I would share. Awesome. Well, we consider you a friend of the pod, and can't wait to have you back. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Veronica Simonetti and executive produced by me. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated.